Well, uh, before we get started, uh, while we're in the spirit of celebration, I know that we've celebrated baptisms uh, all across our church today, but today is a big day, uh, not for us here in London, but today is a big day uh, for all of our friends over in Somerset who are celebrating their ninth anniversary as a campus today. So let's put our hands together uh, for Somerset. Let them know how glad we are. For That's a big day. And getting ever closer to a new building, which I know you're really excited about. And then also one other thing uh, to be excited about. Uh, last week, uh, last week we had someone, it was our first ever decision of someone from our Middlesbrough campus. It's not launched yet, uh, but a group of people uh, form a core group there. But we had someone accept Jesus last week as their savior. It was our first decision for Middlesbrough. So that was a big deal. Uh, so it's been a good week. And, and it's, it's a good day. Uh, and today we kick off a brand new series and I'll start it off like this. Uh, <clears throat> you have one, I have one, everyone has one. And I'm talking about a story. You have a story, I have a story, everyone you ever meet, they have a story. And everybody's story is different. Your, your story is probably very different than my story. And my story is probably very different than your story. And there may be some similarities, but, but by and large, our stories are not the same story. So everybody's story is different, but everybody's story, it matters. It matters because you matter. It matters because I matter. It matters because we matter. And it doesn't really matter what your story is or how convoluted or how complicated or how bland that you think your story is. And when you think back over the story of your life, no matter what you think about it, your story matters because our story is the story of our life. Uh, when it comes to the story of our life, when it comes to the story of my life and your life, uh, the story of our life consists of seasons and, and moments, defining moments and defining seasons. And when you think back over uh, your life and when you think back over your story and you tell your story to your friends or tell your story to your kids one day, tell your story to your grandkids, you know, whatever it is, there's those defining moments, those moments that you go back to and, and it was like a, a split moment decision. It was a momentary opportunity and you took it or you didn't take it or you said yes or you said no and, and you think back along those defining moments and there's normally just a handful of them. They're just a handful over the course of one's life but you can already look back over your life and you can see those defining moments and then for many of us, it, it, it was the defining season. It, it wasn't a moment but it was like weeks, it was months, maybe even a couple of years when we were going through something or we were struggling with something or battling something or just our, our headspace was just cluttered with all kinds of stuff. It was a difficult time professionally. It was a difficult time personally. It was a difficult time in the marriage. It was a difficult time in the family. It was just difficult. And you look back on that season and something about that season, it made an impact on you. And when you read the story of your life, when you know, visit your memories and think back over the narrative, you know, you can see where there were moments of light and moments of darkness. Uh, there, there were moments and chapters maybe even of strength and, and moments and chapters of weakness. Uh, there's parts of our story. Uh, this is my journal. Uh, I, I'm not a great journaler. Um, I, I, I jot down lots of random things and sometimes I go back and I don't even know what I meant when I wrote it down and, and that's not very helpful. Uh, so I should probably tell myself what I was thinking when I wrote it down. But when you go back over the journal of your life that's, that's down there in your heart, it's in your mind, it's in your soul and you go back over it, there, there's some of your story that you're proud of. You're proud of it. 
And you should be, and you don't care to tell people about it, and, and you don't care that your kids know about it, and you don't care that your coworkers know about it. But there are also parts of our story that's down in there, it's deep, and we never open to those chapters very often because we're ashamed of them, we're embarrassed by it, we, we can't believe it, we don't want anybody to know that about us, we, we wouldn't want our kids to know that about us, we wouldn't want our best friends to know that about us, and it's just, you know, it's that part of our story, we're, we've got parts we're proud of, and then there's just parts we're embarrassed by, we regret, we're ashamed of, and that's just part of our story. Uh, Our stories have good and bad in it, Uh, right turns and wrong turns, joy and tears, victories and tragedies. Uh, There's heartwarming things and there's heartbreaking things. There's successes and there's failures. I mean, it runs the full spectrum of the human experience. And then this is what we're going to talk about next week. There's parts of my story that I'm responsible for, but there's also parts of my story that I'm not responsible for. Other people wrote those chapters into my story. Someone else wrote those lines into my story. But when you put it all together, the good, the bad, the ugly, the unfortunate, the unforgettable, the unchangeable, the uninvited, the unwanted, when you put it all together, you know what that is? That's your story. That's my story. That's our story. And the reason this matters, uh, because today we kind of introduce this idea, the reason this matters is our story tells our history and it shapes our identity. It's the story of where we came from. And I could tell you the family that I came from, I could tell you, you know, where I grew up and I could tell you all about kind of the context of, of what I was born into and how I was raised. And, and that would help you understand how I got to where I am. It would also help you understand if you knew enough about me, why I am today the way that I am today. Uh, our stories, it's our history, it, it, it's where you came from. It's the story of your mom or your dad or your grandparents or the fact that you weren't raised by mom or dad or grandparents. It, it, it's the story of who you are and it began with where you came from. The story of our life is the accounting of our life. It, it's the story of everyone and everything that has shaped you and me. Everyone and everything that has shaped you and me along the way. Now, psychologists, they say that we're born like a journal, that it's blank. When we, when we show up into the world, it's just a bunch of blank pages. But all of a sudden, just unconsciously, we start taking notes of the world around us. And we do this from the time that we're able to think, from the time that we're able to notice, from the time that we're able to kind of use reasoning. Uh, We note things, we internalize spoken and unspoken messages over the years. We sponged up everything from everybody's mood to their words, to their actions, especially in the formative years of when you were a child. You paid attention to your mom and dad. You saw their disposition. You you saw their demeanor and you were taking notes the whole time. The way that they spoke to you, the way they spoke to each other, the things that you knew that they did or didn't do, all of those things you were taking note of and you were just computing it down in your subconscious. You you were just noticing all of that. You you noticed the actions and the reactions, the words, the demeanor, the disposition, the, the presence of someone, the absence of someone. And all of a sudden, you began to interpret those things and those experiences and those people in a particular way. And then you began to assign meaning to them and you began to catalog these things. And this is as you're growing up, this is as you're maturing, this is as you are becoming you. From the time that you've been you, you've been drawing conclusions, you've been defining meaning of the world around you up into this very moment. And those experiences and those people that you have taken note of for your entire life, they are like words that are written on your heart. They're like words that are written on my heart. 
And these words became sentences, and these sentences became paragraphs, and then they became chapters, and then it became a theme, and then a story emerged out of it. That's your story. That's my story. And it's complicated. It's not simplistic. None of us are simplistic. It's the story of your life, and it's more than a tale of your feelings or your experiences or events in your life. It's the story of who shaped you. It's the story of what shaped you. It's the story of what's buried deep inside of you and deep inside of me and why it's buried there to begin with. It's the explanation of what drives you, what motivates you. The things that you consider most important in life, in family, the way you view money, the way you view sex, the way you view relationships, the way you view the world, the way you view other people, all of those things are so deeply rooted. It's the story of who you are and why you are who you are. John Walker, who's a PhD psychologist, he said that the story of your heart is guiding you. In fact, far more than you know. You may think you're a bunch of randomly collected feelings, habits, inclinations, and proclivities, but you're far more cohesive than that. You're more than that. You're, you're, you're not simple. You're complicated. We all are. He says, the story of your heart bonds together what's within you and what flows out of you. In other words, your story and my story, it helps, it helps explain a lot. But sadly, we don't get to know each other's story that often because to understand each other's story is to understand one another. And oftentimes the reason we're confused by each other is because we don't know each other. And the reason we don't know each other is because we've never heard one another's story. And it takes a lot of vulnerability to share our stories. It takes a lot of risk to share our stories. Sometimes it's painful to share our stories. But what he's hinting at here He's saying that what's in your heart, what's been written on your heart for your entire life, all these experiences and exposure, people who were present, dad who left, mom who checked out, the abuse, the reaffirming constantly that took place in your house or the absence of any type of affirmation that didn't take place in your house. He says, that's all part of you and everything you do and everything you are, it kind of just comes out of that because your heart is the incubator of your identity. Because our stories not only tell our history, but they help shape our identity. And your identity has been incubating in your heart all of your life. And that is a really big deal, which is why Solomon, to, to go to the scriptures, Solomon said this about the matter. He says, as a face is reflected in water, right? You look down, it's kind of a mirror. So the heart reflects the real person. The place where your story's written, that's the real you. Not the persona you, not the wannabe you, not the hope so you, not the pray I will one day be you, but the full time, real, when it's just you and the lights are out, you, the real you. Not the you somebody else thinks you are, not the you that your children believe that you are, or your spouse thinks that you are, or your mom or your dad thinks you are, but the real you, the real me. That's the heart. That's where the story is written. That's where all the good and all the bad and all the ugly and all the unfortunate and unforeseen and unforgettable and unchangeable moments in life, that's where they kind of hang out and they're in there. They've been written on our hearts. Now, once we understand this, no wonder Solomon would say in another place, he would say, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm here to tell you everything means everything, for everything you do. Think about that, everything you do. 
The flip side is true. Everything that you don't do, everything you do, it flows from it. Flows from what? Flows from your heart. What's written on your heart? The story of your life. And out of the story of your life is flowing everything about you. And sometimes we don't even realize it. So Solomon says, listen, this is a big deal. So guard your heart. Guard your heart because the decisions you're making every single day, it's coming from deep inside of you. And depending on what story you're living out of, depending on what identity you have reserved for yourself or pronounced over your life, depending on all of those things, it is a foreshadowing of the type of life that you and I are going to live, the type of choices that we're going to make. So Solomon says, so guard your heart. There's some things down there deep inside you may not even be aware that's there, so guard your heart. Take inventory of your heart. Pay attention. And Solomon says, this is the most important thing because you live life out of here. And, and the idea is this, that what we do is always connected to who we believe we are. What we do is always connected to who we believe we are. What we say about ourselves, what we say to ourselves, what we believe that someone else has said to us or about us or has spoken over us once upon a time, what culture says about me or what culture says about you or what your mom or dad said about you once upon a time or what that best friend back in middle school, you just never been able to forget it and they said it one day and it just kind of stuck with you or you know what they were making fun of or, or kind of you know just that humiliation uh, of growing up up and you know you went to college and all of a sudden there was that event and all of a sudden that event became who you were and you've not been able to escape it and you've been living life out of it for the entirety of your life since then. Solomon says so guard your heart because what you do is connected to who you believe you are and your heart is where your identity begins. It's the incubator. It's, it's the place where what you say about you resides. Your identity, my identity, it has a voice. And it speaks to us, it speaks to us in the quiet, it speaks to us when we're alone. It tells us who we are, who we believe we are. It whispers to us, you are this. It whispers to us that you're not this, or you measure up or you don't measure up. And it says all kinds of things to us, which is why Solomon said, this is a big deal, guard your heart, because who I say I am, it affects how I think, it affects what I do, it affects how I feel, it's a big deal. Now, when we think about identity, and again, this is kind of like the kickoff to this series, so I hope that you're gonna be here for the remainder of it because today just kind of gets us started. When it comes to who you say you are, it's tied to lots of different things. It's connected to life events, it's connected to biology, it's connected to geography, to sin, to family. Uh, life events has shaped some of you. Once upon a time, you, you, were, you were diagnosed with a terminal illness, but you came through it somehow. You, you, you were diagnosed with you know, a chronic illness and it's changed your life or your parents divorced or there was a premature death of someone or, or you prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for something to happen once upon a time and it didn't happen and you've just never been able to shake it. You've never been able to move past it. And, and so some life event has shaped your sense of who you say you are. And then there's biology, you know, your gender, your male, your female, you know, what does that mean? You know, if you're male, you know, there's some things that goes along with that. And if you're female, there's some things that go along with that. And, and your natural personality bents, you lean towards extroversion, you lean towards introversion, you know, you're more black and white, you're more artistic, you know, all of those things. 
they have much to do with who you say you are. Geography, where you were raised. I was raised in Bell County, Kentucky. Uh, that, that makes a mark on a fella, I'm telling you. You can't get out of Bell County and not know that you were born and raised in Bell County. I mean, there's just some, some of you, you have no idea, you've never been there, you should. Spend a few days, I'll take you, give you a tour because you would be better for it, I, I'm sure. But your geography, sin, sin that you committed, sin that somebody else committed against you, that's marked you. But nothing's marked you like family. And that can either be a fortunate thing or an unfortunate thing. Our families can be a source of blessing or baggage, maybe both. Many of us could look back and we see our family stories now and you realize that your family, did you ever, any, anybody else grow up and you realize your family had secrets that you never knew of until you were an adult, anybody? Was that, your, okay, just us, okay. So that's great, it's wonderful. We are crazy alone. And uh, so, you know, I realized when I became an adult that my family had all, you know, I, I, I need to watch out because my family watches and I wanna let any of the family secrets out. So, you know, I, I realized there were some things in our family we, we, we never talked about, but man, it was a deal. And I, I grew up knowing there were some things, there were some things I, I couldn't understand, I couldn't put a finger on it. It's like, why are these things the way they are? And then I, I grew up and I heard the story, I'm like, oh, I understand now. You know, but then you grew up and then you started living your life and you looked up one day and you were repeating some of the same storylines as your mom or dad or your grandfather and your grandmother and you didn't even mean to. You were just kind of acting out the family storyline because when you were born, your family gave you spoken and unspoken rules, uh, truths, philosophies about life, about money, about marriage, about, you know, everything. Uh, your, your family had a position kind of on everything and they kind of gave it to you in a spoken way or an unspoken way. And, and it imprinted on you, it imprinted on me in, in a way that sometimes it's influencing our behavior and our thinking in, in ways that we didn't even, in ways that we don't even understand still today. Some of the things we do, same of our tendencies, some of our repeating habits, all of that. We don't even want to think about it, but that's, gosh, that's, that's mom showing up. That's, that's gosh, that's, that's classic dad, that's my grandfather, that's my grandmother, and it's just, it's kind of showing up, and it's crazy how it does that because it's, it's written down there on our heart. Uh, some of our families were functional, some of them were dysfunctional, and, and it has much to do with how functional or dysfunctional we are today, and maybe a little bit of both. Uh, some families that we grew up in were very guarded, you didn't talk about feelings. You didn't really hug. You didn't, there was not a lot of physical affection. Uh, so it was all reserved. Some families were just, I mean, it was just open. Let's talk about everything. You know, you can, you can, hey, let's, let's hug this out, you know, you know, kind of thing. And, and some families were entirely different. Uh, some emotions were encouraged and some were repressed to say, you know, we don't do that around here. We don't, we don't talk like that around here. Uh, for some of you, your parents told you they loved you all the time, all the time. Some of you, you grew up in a home and you can't remember once your father looking at you and saying, I love you. Some of you can't ever remember a time that your mom looked at you and said, I love you, I'm proud of you. I'm really, I'm really grateful for the person you've become. You, you just can't remember those things because it just wasn't where you came from. The way conflict was resolved in your home. All of that's been written on your heart. Some of you are passive aggressive and there's a reason why. Some of you are overly aggressive and there's a reason why. Some may be too passive and there's a reason why. Our stories help explain who we are and how we got here. And so when you put all that stuff together, you, you put together life events, biology, geography, sin, family, you know, you, know, you know what you get? A mess. A mess. That's what you get is a mess. I'll tell you this story next week. 
But a couple of years ago, I, I, I hit a wall. A couple of years ago, I was in a dark place and it was difficult and it was horrific. And, and I'll spare all the details today, but I'll share it next week. I've never shared it before. I went to a clinic in Florida to meet with a counselor and, and to spend a week there. And the first line out of my mouth, uh, when my doctor looked at me and said, tell me why you're here. And I looked and I said, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. And, and then it just kind of went from there. But l- let me define a mess for you. A mess is a condition of disorder or confusion. Does anybody ever feel that way? Just like you're disordered, you're confused, you know, life's full of problems, difficulties or dysfunction, yes. So some of us here today, some of us watching, we are a mess and we know it and we can own it. It's like, I'm a mess, I'm a mess. I look like a mess, I talk like a mess, I'm living like a mess, I am a mess. But some of us, some of us, some of us, some of us are a little bit better at it. And you know what we are? We are a hot mess, a hot mess. And you know what a hot hot mess is? Urban Dictionary says that it's an attractive disaster. It's like your life is a disaster, but my golly, you look good while it is. You'd never know it. Look, look, look at him. He dresses on the nines. Does the guy ever have a hair out of place? And and some of you men are thinking, at least he's got hair. And and it's like, man, life's going so good for this guy. Look at that lady over there. She's got everything. I mean, what else could a person want? She's gorgeous, beautiful. She's smart. Look at their family. Look at this. Look at that. And, you know, it's just like a hot mess. But what you can't see is the heart's a mess. The mind's a mess. It's cluttered. It's crazy in there. And some of us, we just look good. Some of us, we just, we're just able to rise above and we're able to be functional with our mess. And we've gotten really good at it, which is why some people can attend church and they look around and they're like, gosh, I'll never be as good as these people. Well, let me tell you a little secret about the people who attend the Creek Church. We don't have those people. You know what we have? We have messes and hot messes. The people you look at and say, oh, that's a mess. And then people, we look at and say, man, they look too good. They must be a mess, right? That, that's kind of the way the world is. And so here, mess is what we all have in common. That's what we all have in common. That's our meeting ground. That's our common ground. Mess, oh, you know a mess. You've lived in a mess. You've made a mess. Your life's been a mess. Maybe it is a mess. I know what a mess is like. So mess is what we all have in common. The scripture says it this way, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God or the glorious standard of God. So when we fell short of the glorious standard of God, do you know what that is? Mess. Everything short of God's glory is mess. The story of human history after the garden is what? One of mess. One mess after another mess after another after another. But then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up on the pages of history and says, hey, I wanna offer you a solution. I wanna offer you a solution to the mess. And Jesus didn't give us a plan. Jesus didn't give us a statement. Jesus offered himself as the solution for the mess. And Jesus said, I will give you life. And I'm not just gonna give you life, I'm gonna give you new life. I'm gonna give you a new beginning. I'm gonna give you a brand new identity and I'm gonna enter into your story, the story of your life. 
and I am going to shift the trajectory of your story in a different direction. I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna edit your story. Not gonna change your story, but I'm gonna edit your story for my glory and for your good. And that's what so much of the New Testament is all about. It's, it's written to Jesus followers. And people like Paul and Peter and James and John, they would write to Jesus followers who have already decided to follow Jesus. And he would remind them the consequences of what happened when they placed their faith in Jesus. He would remind them of the consequences of having faith. He would remind them of the consequences of what life should look like after you follow Jesus and what it means in the truest sense of the word to belong to the family of God. So one particular letter that Paul writes, and he does just this, he reminds a group of Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, he reminds people like you, hey, you've decided to follow Jesus, you've placed your faith in Jesus, and that means some things. That's changed some things. And so then he reminds them. And so in Ephesians chapter two, this is actually a passage of scripture that we looked at last week, but we're gonna look at it again and we're gonna look at it from an entirely different perspective. He says, he says, once, once upon a time, past tense, once you were dead, that, that was your reality, that was my reality. We were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins, or as one translation said, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He says, once upon a time, that was reality. Once upon a time, that was your truth. That was the truth of your life. That was, the, that was part of the story of your life. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Or in, in other words, to keep fitting with the context of what we're talking about, once upon a time, you were a mess. You were dead in trespasses and sin. I mean, your life was a mess. It was cluttered with bad choices and broken relationships and unhealthy habits and emotions. It was just a mess. And sin was at work. Sin was at work. It was stealing, it was killing, and it was destroying. Once upon a time, before you place your faith in Jesus, this was your truth, this was your reality, that this was your identity. And he goes on to establish that common thread that we all have. He says, all of us, all of us, nobody here, nobody watching, no one anywhere is an exception to this. All of us. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And again, you say, what is Paul saying? He's saying, again, mess is what we have in common. And this is a good reminder the next time you bump up against somebody who's made a mess of things. And the next time you bump yourself up into somebody's life that's made a mess of things, before you take high ground, and before you look down a judgmental long nose, just remember, Mess is what we all have in common. We used to be in a mess, we're in a mess, we're one decision away from a mess. We all have mess in common, so we can't, we can't stand up on a self-righteous you know, box and look down on anybody because mess is what we all have in common. And so Paul says, in this old reality of yours, something changed. This former truth in your life, something changed it. And, and then he jumps ahead in the next verse, he says, but God, but God's so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. God with all of his rich mercy and all the great love wherewith he has loved us. That began to change our story. That God somehow entered into the story and he began to edit the story. That God began to change the story, the story of your life, the story that was written upon your heart, the story of where you came from, the story of all the things that had happened to you, all the things that you participated in, all of those things that God entered in and somehow mercy entered the story. Somehow love entered the story. And this is a big deal. 
while we were messes, that's when he loved us. When we were messes, that's when he was looking to get mercy into the story. Your mess and my mess has never scared God away. Your mess and my mess has never intimidated God. Your mess and my mess has never caused God to say, okay, I'm finished, I'm done, I'm walking away, I'm through. Your mess and my mess has never been able to drive God away, nor will it ever. God is not distracted by, God is not God has not run away by the mess of our lives. Now, the reason it's hard for us to believe this is because this is not how most of us live our lives. We get close to people, we share life with people, and then a mess happens. And more times than not, we disconnect from the mess. More times than not, it's easy for us to walk away from the mess. More times than not, it's easier for us just to say, okay, I am done with this. This is a mess and I don't want any part of it. That's how most of us have lived our life for most of our lives. But God is different. God is not run away by the mess. God is actually attracted by the mess. God actually draws near to the mess. The things that push us away and draw us away and run us away are the things that bring God close. And then he goes on, he says, that even though, even though we were a mess, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. He gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And then he says, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. So God isn't waiting on you and me to clean up the mess. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not clean up your life so God can come near. I, I grew up in a church culture and I've heard it all my life. Uh, even since living here, I've heard it all my life. I've heard men and women say, and I've heard men say it more times than women, I guess just because I've had more conversations with men about it. But I've heard, I've, I've heard so many men say over the years, you know, I'm gonna give faith a shot. I'm gonna give church a shot. I'm gonna give God a shot. As soon as I get some stuff cleaned up in my life, as soon as I get some stuff, you know, straightened out, I got some things I gotta straighten out, then I'll come to the church. I'll get some things straightened out and then, I'll, then I'll, I'll entertain this idea of faith. But that is not the gospel. That is not the good news. That is not the message of Jesus. He does not wait for you and me to clean up the mess because we don't even have the capacity to clean up the mess because at our heart's level, we are a mess. And so he comes to us, he meets us in the mess, and he offers himself as the solution for our mess. And that's why we call it good news. And he goes on, he says, for he, God raised us, Jesus raised us up from the dead along with Christ and has seated us. This, this is present, this is past, that it's now a present reality. He has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now this is interesting, and I don't wanna to spend too much time here. I am standing right here today I, I've, I'm sitting on this chair, that's true. This is reality. I can touch it, I can feel it, this is real. But Paul says at the same time that this is real, there is something that's even more real. As much as this is true, that Trevor Barton is standing on this stage right now, sitting on this chair, there's something else more true than that. There is a greater reality that supersedes this reality. And he says, we right now, as followers of Jesus, we are seated in heavenly realms. That this is true right now. Matter of fact, it is the greater truth. 
that right now in this moment, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly. And though right now I may feel disconnected from him, I may even feel distant from him, I may not sense his presence, he, he may seem far away. Paul says right now the greater truth, the greater reality is that I am united with him. I am with him, I have been made one with him. And despite how I feel, and despite this temporal reality that we live in, he says there is a greater reality, there's a greater truth. And this new reality is at work in your life, it's at work in my life. Because God has now entered the story and he has pronounced a new reality. He has spoken new truth, new truth over your life, new truth over my life, and this new truth is what's most true about you and about me. And, and so again, Paul just keeps on circling this same idea and I just wanna highlight it one more time, he says, this is a big deal because God loves to meet us in the mess. Where does God do all of this for us? In the mess. What did Jesus enter into when he came to this world? The mess. For God so loved the world, for God so loved the mess that he sent his only begotten son. That God came near. God stepped into the mess and offered himself as the solution for the mess. Now, what this means, that if you feel like your life is a mess right now, hot mess, normal mess, whatever kind of mess. If, if there's parts of your life that just feel totally out of control, it's just spinning out of control. You cannot lay your hands on it. You cannot control it. It's just, it's just a mess. It's clutter. It's clutter in your heart. It's clutter in your mind. It's clutter in your soul. It's just, it's just a mess. You know it's a mess. You feel like, it. nobody knows it but you. It's a mess. If you feel that way, if that's how you right now are experiencing life, that mess, whatever that mess is, is an opportunity to meet and experience God. That mess is what's drawing God close to you. And even though God may seem far away, it is in this mess that he is actually stepping towards you. And that mess is a reminder that God doesn't care about the mess as much as he cares about you, as much as he cares about me. And this is what we see happening all throughout the gospels is Jesus navigating in and out of the mess of people's lives. A woman is caught in the act of adultery while Jesus is at the temple one day. And so they drag her bare-breasted all the way up to the temple mount, they throw her down at Jesus, they have their stones, they're ready to stone her and to kill her according to the law. And that's when Jesus said, let you without sin cast the first stone. And then they put down their stones and walked away. And then Jesus, I imagine he got down there and he looked at her and he says, look at me, look at me, look at me. And she looked at Jesus because nobody had ever looked at her like Jesus looked at her. There was no sense of judgment. There was no sense of self-righteousness. There was no sense of anger in his eyes, but he looked at her and knowing her story and knowing the mess of what had just transpired, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is what Jesus did throughout his entire ministry. Even while he was hanging on the cross and one of the two thieves that were hanging beside of him said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him, knowing that his story is a mess. This guy, he's being executed for his crimes. Knowing the mess that this guy's life has been, Jesus looks at him and says, today, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. Jesus met people in the mess, offered himself as a solution to the mess. That's what we find in the gospels over and over again. Why? Well, Paul answers the question. He says, so, so God can point to us. What? Point to us? 
Point to us why. Point to us as an example of what not to do. Point to us and say, dear Lord Jesus, don't do it the way they've done it. No, so God can point to us, so God can point to you, so God can point to me in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. You may hate parts of your story. It, it, it may turn your stomach. It, 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 parts of your story you just would soon to forget, but you can't forget it. But something happens when God steps in and establishes a new reality. Something changes when God steps in and begins to edit the story. All of a sudden, your story and my story begins to be the story that God points to to say, that's what grace can do. That's what mercy can do. That's what love can do. And this is Paul's way of saying we all become trophies in the trophy case of God. We're trophies of grace. As messy as we are, as messy as our stories are, he points to you and he points to me and he says, look at her, look at him. What a trophy of grace. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever woke up one single day of your life and felt like a trophy of grace? Have you ever woke up one single day of your life and felt like a trophy of mercy? That look at me, have you ever felt that way? Look at me, this is, this is what the grace of God can do for you. No, no, we're like, we're locked in those stories. We're perpetually trapped by those failures and those dark moments and all of those things. And we don't feel this way, but God's, God says, that's how I see you. He, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. This is all God. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. This salvation begins something brand new. It's the second birth that Jesus talked about. It's a salvation that defies our past, that defies biology, defies the geography of where we were raised, the sins that we committed, the sins that we encountered. It overcomes all of the things that were written on the story board of our heart. And then Paul, after taking us through this journey, reminding us that we are all messes, but in somehow, in some way, God looks at us now like a trophy of grace. He takes us into the very heart of God. He takes us into the mind of God. Can you imagine that for just a moment? The mind of God, and he says, I'm going to show you how God thinks about you. I'm gonna show you how God feels about you. Despite how you feel about you, despite how your mom and dad feel about you, despite how somebody else feels about you, I'm gonna tell you how God thinks and feels. Wouldn't you like to know right now in this moment how God thinks and feels about you in light of everything? In light of everything that's happened, in light of everything that is happening. This is what Paul says. For we are, present tense, right now, God's masterpiece. Right now. Not one day. Not in the new world to come, not in heaven, not in the kingdom, right now. God, when he thinks of you, he thinks of a masterpiece. When God feels towards you, he says, look at that masterpiece. He sees a story that isn't finished. And I know for you, if it's true, like it is for me, 
I don't feel this. I don't look in the mirror and I don't see that. Paul says, it's what's most true about you. It's the greatest reality of your life. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see a loser, he doesn't see a failure. He doesn't see a hypocrite or somebody who struggles with inconsistencies. He sees a masterpiece. I've, I've stood in front of the Starry Night by Van Gogh. And those colors is amazing with his brilliance and his genius. And, and it is stunning. I've stood in front of the Mona Lisa and as unimpressed as I was. I mean, she was somebody's woman. So, I mean, you know, you gotta just, you gotta go with it. But I mean, it was stunning. You've seen it all your life and you stand there in that moment and you're, you're like, oh my gosh, this is 500 years old. Or Da Vinci's The Last Supper or Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby or, or, or Dickens or anybody else that, that, that literary readers and artists come along to say, this is a masterpiece. To say, this is somebody's greatest work of art. That's a masterpiece. And Paul says, that's you, that's me. You are God's greatest work of art. You are God's greatest literary piece. He is writing a story and it is a masterpiece. It is the story of your life. It is the story of my life. And it's not over yet. And as messy as it's been, as up and down as it's been, when God looks at you, he knows the end of the story. And he says, this, you, me, we, what a masterpiece. Regardless of what's happened, regardless of what's gone down and regardless of what happened once upon a time, that's how God feels about you. And C.S. Lewis said this and wrapping it up. He says, the most fundamental thing is not how we think of God but how God thinks of us. This is infinitely more important. So, let me tell you what my counselor told me and we'll talk more about next week. How you feel isn't a trustworthy barometer of what is most true about you. You may feel like a mess. You may feel like a failure. You may have reason to. You, you may feel like an embarrassment. You, you, you may feel all of those things. Like life itself is coming unhinged. That's how you feel. But what God sees is a masterpiece. And what God says about you is what's most true about you. What God says about me, that's what's most true about me. Some of you, you don't feel loved. You don't even know the last time that you felt truly loved. You're married, you have kids, but something down deep inside, you don't feel loved. And even though you don't feel loved, God says right now, in a way that you can't imagine, with words that can't be used to describe it, I love you. I love the real you. I'm the only person in the universe who knows everything about you. Every last word that's been written upon your heart. The things that you wrote, 
the things that other people wrote. And he says, I love you. I love you as much as I've ever loved you. Some of us, we don't feel special that God calls us the treasure of his heart, the apple of his eye. Some of you, you don't feel forgiven. You still feel dirty. You're still trying to strike deals with God. God, I'm, I'm gonna work hard to do this more and, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'll get rid of this feeling. You just, it's there, it's always there. It's like residue you just you just can't get rid of it. And you may not feel forgiven, but God says you are forgiven. Even if you can't forgive yourself, God says, I forgive it. There's no record of it. It's been taken away as far as the East is from the West. You are forgiven, your sin is gone. That's what's most true about you. You may not feel like a winner, but I'm telling you, you're more than a conqueror. You may feel lonely, but I'm telling you, I'm with you. I'm in it with you. I'm sitting in the mess with you. That's what's most true about you. And God, he wants to just grab you gently by the shoulders and grab me gently by the shoulders to say, you are not your mistake. You are not your worst moment. You are not the sin of your past. You're not the sin of your present. You are more than that. You're not defined by your guilt. You're not defined by the mess. When I look at you, I see a masterpiece. I see a trophy of grace and mercy and love. That's how I feel. And Paul says, he did this by creating us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God doesn't rewrite our stories. He redeems them. He comes along, you invite him in, you place your faith. And in some way he steps in and he begins to edit the stories. He doesn't take an eraser and do away with it. But he goes to the most painful moments of our lives, those stories that were written on our heart. And then somehow he shades in the purpose. And we look back and the pain that kept us back and weighted us down, all of a sudden we begin to read our stories and that pain we begin to see that there was a purpose in it. We go back to all the failures and, and somehow he, he enters into the story and every single failure, it, it began to move things towards good. And you can look back and you can read the story with this perspective of grace. And it's like, oh my goodness, there was good that came from that. He redeems the disappointments. He, he redeems the effects of the absent dad or that absent mom or that abusive relationship. He redeems it. He redeems wrong turns and all of a sudden they became detours that brought us closer to him. He overrules our own mistakes for his own glory and works them to our own advantage. When we invite him in to edit the story. Today, we're gonna to close with one of my favorite hymns. It was written by a man by the name of William Coper. He was actually a roommate of John Newton who wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. And William Coper was like a lot of us. 
He believed these things when someone said they were true, but he fought all of his life to feel as though they were true. His life was a mess. He attempted suicide. He was in and out of mental hospitals. But perhaps when he wrote the lyrics for this song, I think he may have understood it most clearly. And it's the line that says, redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be until I die. He realized that in some way, God was entering into his story and redeeming love was the theme of every page. Father, would you just meet with us in this moment? God, if we feel like we're in a mess and we've never invited you in, we've never trusted your son as our savior and Lord, God, I pray for those that are in a mess and they've never trusted you to see this as an opportunity to meet you in the mess. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, but we're plagued by parts of our story, we're haunted by ghosts of the past. I pray that you would remind us that despite it all, when you see us, you see a masterpiece, a trophy to be shown off, not to be hidden in a corner, not anyone you're embarrassed by, but someone you're proud of. So men who've never heard their fathers perhaps say they love them, I pray in this moment, God, that you would whisper into the hearts of men that you love them. For women who don't feel loved and haven't in a while, will you just whisper into their ear, I love you. You're my masterpiece. For students who are struggling with self-esteem and confidence, would you just whisper, you're my masterpiece. Remind us that redeeming love is the theme of our story and it will be until we die. In Jesus' name.